I had a friend just watching the film. He said, at first I thought it was a film about you. Then a little ways in, I thought, oh, this is a film about other people. And then he said, by the end, I thought, oh, this is about me. Welcome to the Soma Podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Paul. Now that we've deconstructed our evangelical beliefs, we're trying to find a way forward to hold on to Christian faith and community in a post-Christian culture. Uh, welcome to the Soma Podcast, everybody. We have another first for us here today. Uh, Mark and I have a special guest. We've never interviewed a guest before, so we're really, really excited to have Luke Renner in the in the studio. Actually, it's not in the studio. We're doing this remotely, but welcome, Luke Renner. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much for having me. I actually started, you haven't been going for a real long time, and I started listening pretty close to your beginning, so this is kind of fun and exhilarating and weird, but I'm excited. Well, it's good to have you. Thanks for being here. I think this is our 11th episode. Yeah, and so Mark hasn't met Luke. So uh, Mark, this is Luke. Luke, this is Mark. I feel like we have like the the gospel writers on the show here today. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I just to share a little background, I, I, well, we, I enjoy watching your documentary. I've actually made a, co-directed a documentary with a friend of mine. Um, we did a documentary called Conversations After Church which was essentially interviewing people who had gone through a major faith shift in their life oh, wow. and uh, followed, each per- followed each person's story and what led them to go through a, a faith crisis and a change in their outlook on, uh, on the church or God and so forth. What inspired you to, to do that? Um, going through kind of the deconstruction of faith, mm-hmm. um, a friend that I've worked with on a, a few projects, uh, Bevan, he, he had gone through a faith deconstruction where he had grown up in the church and then he, um, yeah, she started making movies as part of his process and he had just really shifted in his thinking and shifting, shifted in how he wanted to understand and apply his faith. And I, I started going through the same process, so we decided to make the documentary as, as part of an exploration. That's cool. So I actually know Luke from uh, years and years and years ago. I, I met you, Luke, in 2004. The reason I know that is uh, I was traveling at the time and doing preaching, and I was down in Indiana. I uh, met you and your dad and your brother. Uh, the reason I know we met in 2004 is because the three of us, the four of us went out to a movie um, during the, our, my stay there. We went and saw Secret Window, I think it was a Stephen King story with Johnny Depp in it. And so I was just like, oh, I just, I just went to Google it when that was released. And it was released in 2004. So I have literally not seen you, Luke, for like 16 years. Wow. Just right now on this, on this Skype call is the sort of first time I've seen you. I don't think I've ever told you this, but you were kind of the first honest to goodness filmmaker I think I had, I had met at, at that point in my life. Like, I mean, somebody who had, who is really pursuing a dream. And uh, I, I think we went over to your place and you had your own sort of, you know, um, like sort of theater set up in your own house. And I just thought it was so cool. I was so impressed by it. It was very inspiring to me. I, I actually ended up getting into TV and film and production oh. later on in my life after I tried to try to find out what, what I'm supposed to do after, you know, leaving the ministry behind. Wow. Um, and then, and then also, you know, Mark has background in film. So I feel like, I feel like there's some connection there for between the three of us to get, to get going. But I really, first of all, want to sort of ask you, sort of what, what made you get into uh, film? Like what, how did you become a filmmaker? What sort of was the st- story behind that? It's funny because a lot of these questions, I think um, I've asked myself along the way at some point, I, I'm in a process of kind of meeting myself for the very first time later in life. Um, uh, roughly five years ago, I had uh, what I can now uh, probably call something that was very similar to what I used to call um, a born again experience or a rebirth experience. Um, I say used to call because I used to, when I would say that in the past, that would be referring to a religious process of renewal and rejuvenation, rebirth, as described in the Bible. But also in the sense that by discovering uh, things about me that were true, that were sort of like kind of locked up inside, that were absolutely influencing my life as a grown man, but whose source, I just, I mean, I didn't see it. So I had all these sort of... um, truths about me that made life really hard. They came from a place. And so being born again was when I was really kind of broken so much. It's like if you you think about the the picture of someone who got their nose broken and it healed crooked and the way to fix that, 
I guess, is to re-break that. And so it was like a re-breaking that happened in, in uh, you know, the aftermath of a traumatic experience that started the process for me of putting back the pieces. And when you're putting back together a puzzle that's 35 years old, um, you start to go, why are these pieces stuck together this way? Why, why did I ever think that? Or why did I feel this way? And so it's like, because you become so deconstructed, the reconstruction process can be a discovery process. And you can learn a lot just about yourself. Um, and so that's happening also. If you were to watch the film, you might take away, oh, he doesn't like his religious upbringing or he didn't like his past. Uh, that's not an accurate full read on my situation. And I don't say that. I just think people might come away with that. Truth is, I was blessed to have a father who was a pastor because, uh, and he was pretty good at it in his own right, in his own community. Paul, you can vouch for that. Um, he was a great storyteller. And and he, uh, of all the things he introduced me to, some of those things I still struggle with, some things I don't agree with. One of the things that I can never deny is watching the power of story at work, watching what could happen when my father or a similarly gifted speaker might get up there and use human communication to, to and I would see it transforming lives. And I became hooked on story. I didn't, I couldn't have put it that way back then. Robert McKee describes story as the currency of human contact, meaning we use it like money to exchange with one another. I almost think of story like the conduit through which human energy flows, and we can get on the same page around story, whereas all the little like personal experience stuff is where we go, oh, well, that's not me. Oh, well, that's not me. When we bring a story into in focus, we can all kind of grab on and, and let it drag us along. No, that's great. Oh, that's a good answer. I think stories too, they, they're great carriers for experience. So experience by itself can can go in directions that don't don't add anything but when you add the story and the meaning and the, and the the container of the story it amplifies it and gives it weight um i just wanted to say when you're mentioning about the conversion experience and how it seemed like you had um, a, a refreshed or, or new conversion experience later in life that's in a sense that's an um uh, it's like almost like a character change right you're upgrading your character or changing sure how you see yourself and how you're going to operate and function um, in the story that you're attempting to live out in your own life. Absolutely. I mean, because literally you're not a different physical person in that sense. I mean, you still find yourself in the aftermath of a traumatic experience. You're, you're shaken, but it's still you. But you don't feel like the you you were inside before. And so that's where things start getting really like, wait a minute, like, was this just a bad day or week or month or did this really damage me? You know, so. So would you describe it as a, a grief process or a coming to terms with a lot of sort of buried grief that was in your life? Yeah. I, I mean, for me, there was grief. There's anger. There's uh, bitterness. There's loneliness. There's, um, you know, feelings of sadness. There's deep grief that kind of, you know, words fail to really hold. Um, there's a lot. You know, and I think it's um, it's very similar for everybody, and it's different for everybody. You know, it's just got all these. There's parts about it that we can get together on, and there's parts about it that can make us feel more alone. Uh, clearly, that is is why story is such a good thing because we don't need to be alone, especially when we're not well or when we're wounded or when we're suffering, bleeding out. You need someone to put pressure on the wound. You need someone to bandage you. You need someone to care for you. We are meant to be in community with one another, not just for singing fun songs or going over scriptures, right? But for just being alive, like it keeps us alive. So we're definitely going to get into your your documentary, Luke, that has just recently been um, released, uh, What Lies Inside. I thought it was just so beautifully shot. It was beautifully written, directed, edited, and I found out that, you know, you, you were doing it all. Like it was, this is a really talented guy. So I just want to say right off the top, I have tremendous respect to you, respect for you on that sort of filmmaking level. Way to go. What a great job on this film. Thank you. Um, but if I go back to 2004, there are a few scenes in the film where you do touch on your past religious background. It's not that you don't really settle there, but you, you, you certainly start there. 
And I actually rec- I recognized one of the scenes. Uh, there was a, there was a gentleman pr- uh, prophesying and praying over you, and I was just like, yeah, I actually know that guy. He was he was my mentor for some for some time there. So we definitely come from similar circles, more of that sort of charismatic um, kind of background uh, in in the church. Uh, and so I think I can really connect with you. Now, obviously, I've gone on a deconstruction journey, and I have no idea what your journey has been. So this is a bit of a uh, a risk, I guess. But I, I guess I was curious. Sort of where did your journey take you in terms of faith and your religious upbringing? Um, yeah, so you came through, I, you know, I remember, this is interesting because you're describing me as, as having had some impact on your life, and I actually have a similar experience of you passing through my life. No way! This was around the time, oh, absolutely, this was around the time, some of what you were speaking, I think you were talking about the Jesus Has Left the Building um, project that you had worked on. Uh, was it a, a book you wrote? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you were kind of talking about that. And you were, as I recall, you were kind of one of these voices coming through. You know, I, I come from a small charismatic church, uh, independent, not affiliated with a larger mothership. You know, like if it has its own problems, it's got to figure it out. It doesn't have anybody to call. Um, that can be exciting and interesting and fun. It also comes, it's preloaded with a lot of uh, potential for trouble or problems or complexities that are a lot harder to solve on your own. But um, you came through with a message that started to, to disrupt me, quite frankly. I mean, you were, you were basically questioning. Um, I don't know if it was quite the status quo, but at that time you were questioning a lot of the things, as I recall, that just seemed fundamental, like we don't question these things. And you were doing it in a gracious way, and you were doing it in a calm way. One of the things you see a lot of in the churches I grew up in was a lot of, well, like the prophecy in the film, you see a lot of people screaming at people. Uh, not, I mean, that's a good thing. Uh, not like screaming at them like, ah, I hate you, but like it gets intense. I mean, it can get really intense. By the time I knew that I was going to walk away from the formalized church for a while. The people in the room were drunk in the spirit. They were barking and clucking. They were, uh, it, it just got a little too weird for me. Like that was, I, I had a line <laughs> and that was it. So barking like a dog was your line, Luke? <laughs> it just wasn't working for me. It wasn't working for me. Or, or the the idea of spiritual drunkenness was, um, it was, it, and I don't even claim to have that figured out right now, by the way. I'm just saying that those were some of the things that I was like, huh? You were a voice that that brought in some of that questioning. I remember not long after you came through. I mean, I don't exactly know the timeline because my past is like Swiss cheese in my head. But I preached a sermon once. Uh, this would have been probably after we met, but it would have been a sermon that was sparked by having met you. Not, I wouldn't say it's a direct line, right? But little little dot to dot. The message was um, why I'm not a Christian anymore. And I, I, I spoke the message at a youth conference. So I had like five reasons or something, you know, it was, and my number one reason why I'm not a Christian anymore was that I, you know, shouted out to the youth group was uh, because I, I'm gay or I'm not gay. I can't remember the exact angle, but the idea was that the word changed. Gay used to mean happy. Gay means this other thing. And so I like hung my whole sermon on the idea that words don't mean what you, just because you say it means what it means, doesn't mean that anymore. And Christian doesn't mean anything to me anymore. And I'm, I'm letting it go. I mean, those are early signs of, of me going, okay, I'm on a, I'm on a path I wasn't on just a moment ago. You know, I'm, I'm looking for something. What I didn't know and couldn't have known is that I, I really was having a software conflict inside of me. I was having this internal glitch. And the internal glitch was that my inner experience of life, which contains a lot of things I don't actually remember explicitly. And when I say explicit, I'm talking about pictures, words, that's what most people think of when they hear the word memory. You know, uh, there are other kinds of memories. There are implicit memories and an implicit memory to give a really quick, good example would be, you can actually move things around in your memory. So something that starts as an explicit memory is learning to drive a car. You've never done it before. All the details are like super important. Hands at 10 and two, what's the speed limit? Maybe I'm squeezing the wheel a little too tight. Uh, check the mirrors, you know, it's all this panic and it's all very in the foreground of your mind. You're going through the list. Now when you drive, you don't even think about it. 
You don't. It, so it's been moved from explicit memory to implicit. Our body as a survival mechanism runs a tremendous amount of programming in the implicit memory. Things we learned before we could learn with language because we don't speak yet. But the lessons it's writing at that time are being written into the fiber of our being. But then as our experience changes, so if I'm weak and I was uh, made, uh, I was victimized, now, 40 years later, I'm not weak anymore, but I might have the same reaction to the same kinds of attitudes that victimize me and that sort of thing. So I started to see just a lot of things that didn't add up. I, I, had, I had believed a lot of things and professed a lot of things that my inner experience wasn't agreeing with. I used to tell people they agreed, but I, like, uh, I felt like I was lying about some of it. And so I began a process of just really what it boiled down to was I want to stop lying. I just want to stop lying. I don't need to get all the answers. I just want to start by stopping lying. <laughs> if I don't, if I didn't hear the voice of God in an, like through my eardrums, I'm going to stop saying that I did. You know, if it was a strong thought coupled with an emotion that made it seem like probably God, I'm going to call it that. Yeah, one of the things that uh, as I was watching the documentary, I watched it with my wife, and we both kind of came away was. You know, there's a passage in Scripture that says, clean the inside of the cup, you know, and it's, it's a, a Jesus talking to the Pharisees, and, you know, that's sort of the fine print. And what I see in the documentary is, is you're talking about the process or one of the ways that the inside gets clean, right? And that's getting that grief out, getting that trauma out, being honest about what the internal reality and in slate really looks like. Um, and I think that's... That's important. That's that's one of the ways that we kind of live out that spiritual reality and, and, you know, deal with who we really are, basically. This took six years to make. And one of the jobs is I had to figure out what is my message? What's it? What's the one takeaway? And where I landed, and Mark, I think you, you picked up on it. Uh, I wouldn't have put it exactly that way, but I think you totally picked up on it. Um, is I want people to take their own suffering more seriously, period. Uh, mo one of the things that I ran into over and over and over in the making of this film was people who, by any uh, clinical definition you could say, had experienced a traumatic event over and over and over saying, I know I don't have trauma in my life. Because it, people don't know what that means. They don't have a real functional working grasp of what that means. And what I was able to do, I hope, with the film was give us a better picture of what that means. And when, that, when, when that's happening on screen, what, what I hope is happening, and what, what seems to be happening for a lot of my audience, is they start to go, oh, well, now, wait a minute. Maybe I do belong in this group. One of the things that we do is we compare ourselves, right? Social media works. This is the fuel of social media is comparison for good or bad. So you guys have seen the film. So, you know, Eva Moses core is in the film and you know who she is. Oh, well, my story is nothing compared to her story, right? Because I think for her and probably a lot of us, the Holocaust is there's, we've sort of stuck a flag in that as the most evil thing humanity has ever done collectively trauma and, and to hear Eva kind of help you get there. She says in the film, each of us has our Auschwitz moment where you have to decide, am I going to live or not? And it's like, I can't say that. And I'm not 100% sure I agree. <laughs> when she says each of us has our Auschwitz moment, that's hard for me to even agree with. Luke, I was going to ask you about your your interview with, with Eva because I, I found that to be a very, very powerful moment in the film. Uh, but you know, that's not the only one I, I, I teared up probably six or seven times throughout the film. It was very emotional. It was very moving. Um, and the thing about it is when, when the film was done for me, I remembered each one of those moments I teared up. Like there was just something about how you told the story about the visuals, the sound, I don't know what it was, but I could, I could literally scribble down every single moment. I had been touched emotionally. Um, so I, I don't think I've ever really experienced that before watching a film. And I, I would say at least half of those moments were moments from your own personal life. Our stories aren't probably terribly different in some ways, right? In that, in that sense. I think you're right. And 
I found that you were quite vulnerable. I, I mean, it was it was quite courageous for you to tell this story. And I, I guess I guess I just wanted to ask you about that, like sort of the process of creating this film. What I mean, what motivated you to do that, and, and then put yourself in the in the story? You know, when I started the film, a hundred percent honest, I had the same problem when I started the film that I admit to having at the end of the film, which was I needed people to love me. So I started the film because I wanted you to love me. It was one more, it was, another, it was connected to the problem that I hadn't even discovered yet, which I would discover while making the film, which made it into the film, which I then owned up to at the end. So in the beginning, I started it because I'm a wounded, desperate person who couldn't love himself and was going to use this as one more way to get that love. There were a lot of changes in between. One, one change, just to give you, this was an interesting moment. I think it's valuable. I had gotten really frozen up about continuing forward. And I'm driving home from Florida from a vacation. We're a big family and we're not rich, so we drive. So we're driving back to Indiana from Florida. We're getting close to Savannah. And I come up on, there's an accident on the interstate. And it had just happened. I didn't see it happen, but there were no first responders. So it's that little window right there. I do what I always do, guys. I just pull over. I just pull over. I just get, I'm like a robot. And this is part of this is conditioning. I'm not entirely proud of it, but we won't talk about all that. But I just got out and immediately walked up to the first vehicle, which was all smashed. And there was a lady inside and there were three kids sitting on the guardrail right at the median up ahead. So I walked over and uh, one of the kids was five, little five-year-old boy. Uh, the next boy was, I think, 10. And then there was a girl who was 13 and they were all shook. I mean, it was a, they were in the vehicle that the woman was stuck in back there. They had been in that vehicle. There was, this was an accident. And I sat down, crisscross applesauce, you know, you cross your legs. I just sat down on the asphalt right there at the foot of the five-year-old. And um, the little boy who was five had a little bit of blood coming out of the corner of his mouth and his nose. But he was, he was shy, but he, he was otherwise upright and didn't seem to be terribly, you know, shaken. So I was just talking to him, helping him process feelings. Then we start to hear the fire trucks and the ambulances in the distance. And I said to him, I said, guys, you know, you hear those? Those are going to get closer and they're going to get louder and they're going to, they might get scary. And when those guys get here, those guys and gals, when they get here, they're going to be telling people what to do and they may seem scary, but I promise you, they're going to help you. And this is going to, you know, all this. So I'm doing this with them and by the time the ambulance pulls up, this little five-year-old lurches forward and hugs me. <sighs> he just wraps his arms around me. I give him a hug back. And I had told him when I got there, if anybody needs a hug or anything, just, you know, I'm here or whatever. I was very hands-off, but offer, you know. And um, I eventually walked him over to the ambulance. They got in the ambulance. And I got in the car, and I was—I have my own kids, some of them in the car. But I looked down at my sweatshirt, and there's a blood stain on it from this little boy. And I felt proud. I felt good. I felt like I did what I should have done. I felt like I helped, you know, all the little things we do to pat ourselves in the back. And as I was driving away, I heard the voice in my head say, you had no fear. You didn't hesitate. All the things that you, you're probably going to do wrong, uh, but everything about this was right. And that was a moment where it, it woke me up from realizing like, Luke, you're, you are saving face. You're, you're, you're protecting your own reputation. You're trying to look like a winner. And so at the end of the day, I'm still exposed. Paul, you talked about vulnerability. Um, I mean, you guys have seen it. You know, I talk about trauma that I can't show you. And I talk about it like I'm convinced. And I still know that some people are going to go, no, this guy's a sack of hot gas. He's, you know, he's, you know, okay. I'm not in this for them to approve, you know. The bottom line is, I think, by also making it a point to be very careful not to make this the Luke show, because the film feels like it might be that by the time it starts, you know, when it starts out, it feels like this might be about this dude only. Uh, I had a friend describe the, watching the film. He said, at first I thought it was a film about you. Then a little ways in, I thought, oh, this is a film about other people. And then he said, by the end, I thought, oh, this is about me. <laughs> so it does tend to have that effect, and, and that's intentional.
I think that's well put, Luke. Honestly, that's that's the same experience I had watching the film. And I, I think your story actually made it, it hooked me because it was one of those moments where I was waiting for you to, um, you know, for the other shoe to drop in your life in the story. And I think it was chapter eight by the time it did. And I think you, you it built really well for me to, I kept wanting to watch because I kept wanting to find out what had happened in your story, right? Okay. So I, I, I think that was well crafted. Um, I, and, and I think that moment where you talked about loving yourself mm. and that you moved, you moved your family to, to Haiti to try to, you know, to try to, sh- to sh- get people to love you. Yeah. I, I, that was another moment in the film that really struck a chord with me. Think like if you watch the film really closely, you'll notice that there are no answers. There's really no answers. And there really aren't necessarily a lot of big questions. What I, what you're watching is not a film about my healing. You're actually not watching a film about me healing. If you think about it, really all I've told you is, folks, this is some of what I'm now working on, right? I, I'm not done with these things. Somebody somebody actually who watched the film who was a, a survivor of trauma, who um, a friend who had experienced a pretty, I would say a pretty significant, I mean, we're talking shot with a shotgun and kidnapped and, and held. Like, you know, we would all agree that's a capital T trauma. <laughs> and... um this person said to me, like, uh, I, I've come to, to, to believe that just healing's not possible. You just don't heal. And that was challenging to me. And at first I thought, well, I don't agree with that. But really what it led me to do was that same thing I do with, like, the word trauma or the word Christian, which is to go, well, what do we mean by that word? So Joe in the film lost a leg. Uh, he's done healing. His leg's never coming back. So healing doesn't mean full restoration. It doesn't mean you're now the thing you once were. It can actually mean full restoration on some level, but you're going to be a different shape maybe on the other side, outside and inside. And so healing, I think, is possible, but it's important not to confuse that with, you know, the full return to pre-trauma condition. Um, Quite frankly, I don't want that. No, I would say that's, Part of the spiritual process, uh, to put it in, in language, it, it may be a different frame, but the spiritual process includes um, coming to terms with what's happened to you and finding a way to move forward and, you know, comfort those in the way that you've been comforted and, you know, uh, verses like that. You essentially, whatever happened to you in your life, like I grew up in a home with um, some alcoholism and, and just uh, some real period of disruption. And, um, and I didn't realize the reason I don't feel my emotions is because I just compartmentalize for a lot, you know, and then I start feeling my emotions in, in midlife and I got depressed because of it. And, and mm. but that's a process I had to go through coming out the other side gives me, a, it, it doesn't overdo what happened to me, but it does give me a new, a new and wider perspective. And I, I, in my own life come, come to terms with some of what's happened to me and, and now I find I work with students who have all kinds yeah. of family trauma yeah. and difficulties. You know, it's, it's none of it's really, um, uh, it's fairly typical. A lot of what happens, broken families, you know, angry parents, um, you know, people, people die on, ex- you know, you don't expect them to die and all kinds of things happen that are very mundane in, in many ways, but they do carry a huge impact and you never know what the degree is going to be. Right. Absolutely. Um, and then people have to have to work through that. And but in, in my experience, it, t- it does take a very long time to work through it. And everyone it's, it's a different point in the journey. You know, I think that's one of the things I love about Dr. Carrie Ann Williams in the film, where she talks about how wellness is really relative. Um, now that's not the same necessarily for 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 unwellness. Like we can point to unwellness unwellness and go, this person is unwell. Like there are objective ways to do that. One way psychologically you would do that is is when the trouble that the person is experiencing internally is now affecting other people's lives. Okay, now we've now you've crossed a you've breached this line where what was inside of you only is now not just inside of you. I don't know how many of you own computers. Uh, I have an an Apple laptop. And from time to time, I'll get an alert that it's time for a software update. And anybody who knows anything about computers over the years knows that you're going to get new operating systems. You're going to have to get new versions of software. You're going to have to do these things. I find it sort of 
staggering that a lot of us are walking around as people having never done a software update on ourselves. Like we're, we're operating on really old programming and we've never even thought to question the programming. And, and it's, I mean, we're not robots, but in terms of the brain and thinking and, and ideas, that wetware up inside of our skulls, it is software uh, ideas. Um, and so I would encourage people, again, whether or not you feel like, hey, trauma is not my thing. I'm not in, I, I, even if you watch the film and you say, I haven't experienced any of that, you probably know someone who has, right? And it's good to know about, and it's good to have that experience because it's going to make you a more gracious person. It's probably going to make you a little less frustrated with people because there are a lot of people out there acting on old software, and to people who are on a little more current version of software, you might go, what is wrong with this person? I don't see the world the way they do. I don't really pull this out super explicitly in the film, but really the setup here is because I had trauma in my backstory, let's go to the Bible here, because my foundation was sand. When the earthquake hit me, it, it was the earthquake experience plus... I, I, my building fell because my building was built on sand, if that makes sense, the building of my life. Well, that, that was one of my favorite parts in the documentary because you were talking about walking around and, and the, the external reality was triggering, to use, I guess, a, a word that's become very common. It was, it was eliciting something inside of you. And, and I, you know, I think that's the way it is. You know, it, you, you describe it really well. It's, we have these emotional programs running that are still operating sometimes for entire life and they get you know like like all little apps little emotional apps they get triggered by certain certain things that happen and then you're wondering you know so why does the guy at the tr the traffic light why is he screaming angry because right. he got cut off you know is it really about getting cut off you, you're going to be one second slower but something else is happening it, it's triggering him maybe it's that he you know rejection in his family or whatever and he probably has no idea like he's i mean in some sense if if he's being overtaken on a regular basis by these outbursts he's not in control of that so that's there's just a really strong argument here to say that he's he's operating on some old programming let me just like let me give you a little picture of my story a little more explicitly than what you see in the film so but i'll make it kind of quick and bulleted so as a little tiny kid before I could speak or really think about things in terms of pictures. I wouldn't have known the difference between red and white. I wouldn't have known the difference between genitalia. You'll understand why that's important. But something happened to me, right? It happened to me before I could have walked away and, and you know, as, as Chris Rock says, walked it off <laughs> and then gone and talked to somebody about it, you know? Um, I couldn't have done that if I wanted to. So, but my parents didn't do it. Something happened, it's pre-language pre-explicit cognition and i so i had no way to process the experience i couldn't chalk it out i couldn't even sit there and imagine it because i can't conjure up what those things were they don't have names my parents missed that so they fail in that moment as being my protectors so now i'm not so sure about them yeah they didn't do it but where were they when it happened and it was crushing and awful and horrible so i'm just on guard right now because that's never happened to me before. Where the hell did that come from, right? So I'm having this experience. My parents completely miss it. So I'm like, am I crazy? Again, none of this is happening on the level of language. I can't even think, am I crazy? Those words don't, they're not there for me, right? So it's just like nothing's adding up. Now, my parents, who are good God-fearing people, are big believers in the idea that if you spare the rod, you spoil the child. So children need to be disciplined. And among the, the various things they would do to discipline us, they didn't only spank us, but they spanked us. And sometimes I would get spanked with my pants down with a wooden spoon and it friggin' hurt, you know? And that would happen to me a lot, right? Because I'm this wired up, traumatized soul because of the thing everybody missed. Now I don't, I'm, I can't settle. So because I can't settle, I'm a wild child. Because I'm a wild child, I get hit a lot because they're just tired of it, right? They just can't handle it. And the Bible said it was okay from their point of view, so go for it. Uh, but I'm now, you people didn't protect me, now you're hitting me, okay? Then there's this narrative at church. We are all, 
I'm, I'm going to, it doesn't say it this way, but this is how it read to my spirit. We are all garbage unless God makes us not garbage. So accept God and stop being garbage. Now, wait a minute. I feel like garbage because of what happened that I've never been able to talk about or express or even remember in the, in the explicit sense. My parents hit me. There's all like, there's all these different little narrative lines that when they come together, they don't actually belong together. They have nothing to do with one another. But they fit together in what appears like a new story that's emerging, which is this world wants to hurt me. This world isn't safe. This, I mean, even the thing that is supposed to be safe. Yes, I feel safe at home, but not all the way. Not all the way. I got to watch my back as an adult. It's hard to look people in the eye. You, you make bad business deals. You, you, you do everything. It's sort of, it all trails back to these things. And so I feel like that self-exploration can help you, that curiosity. And that's why I say curiosity and almost a sense of playfulness, because you don't necessarily want to return to this place uh, with the pain that you once had. Here's a great example. I have a very vivid picture memory of where I usually got spanked in my house, the room, who was doing it. I can get back into that room. I can be bent back over my dad's lap with the paddle coming down hard. And I can feel it, not just the pain on my skin, but the rejection, what feels like rejection, soon followed by the pickup and the hug and the explanation that it wasn't rejection, it was love. Very confusing. But normally when I would remember that experience, I would remember it as the little kid laying on the lap. Because that's who I was when I was there. But now, when I get back into my software and start reprogramming, that experience is in there. The lessons I learned from those hits are in there. When I go back, I realize I'm 45 now. So when I remember that room, the more appropriate thing for me to do is to be in the room, not on my father's lap, but standing in the corner watching as a 45-year-old man, remembering on a thing that once happened. And in that context, I'm able to say to myself, Luke... You know he meant well. I mean, I do know that. I can, as an adult, I get it. As a kid, I didn't. So now I can work out that kink. I have to generally try and understand, like, my past matters, even the invisible, and maybe even more so the invisible. Because if there are things in you that are driving action and behavior, and you can't see them, I, I will go so far as to say those are the most powerful parts of you, because you can't see them. And they have this influence that is completely unchecked. You might see it and l allow that part of you to continue behaving that way, but it's through your permission. It's through, I've, I've gone back. I went to do a software update. This particular program is still good. We're going to let that one stay. This one over here, you know, I'm not afraid of my dad anymore. I'm not going to worry about that one now. So yeah, I don't know if you used the word forgiveness in the documentary. I don't remember. But what was, you're describing a process that I would understand as, um, there needs to be a letting go. There needs to be forgiveness for you to sort of delete or upgrade that programming in your mind. So in the movie, you, the documentary, you made a, a point at the end of coming and hugging your mother. And, and, I, and I think you were with your father. And, and the message I got was you were um, you were in relationship with them. You had forgiven them. And um, I, could you talk about that process a little bit? Was that is that ongoing? Was that explicit or? This was a really uh, tough part about making the film, actually, because, so you saw at the section where it says 2015, I say on camera, to my off-camera producing partner, do you remember that the first line of the film was going to be, and, he, and the line was going to be, this is not a story about my parents. Looking back, I laugh at how obvious it was that my subconscious mind was telling me to say, that's not the story. That's the story, like in a lot of ways. That's exactly the story. The deal was I had to face some of that stuff. I mean, it's not the whole story, but I knew going in subconsciously. Remember, I started the film in 2014. So by the time I'm sitting on the couch crying, telling you that, it's only been a year. So it didn't take me very long to get really thick into the mud and go, okay, if I'm going to keep moving forward into the unpleasantness of this, it's going to involve my family. And I would seek advice from fellow storytellers and just people I trust. What do I do? Because I could have said unkind things about my parents, like... A lot of unkind things. Um, and one of my one of the people I reached out to for counsel said, you know, like, say it all. 
just say it all, let it all go. You could sense that they were kind of like, yeah, you know, that sort of like accident goosenecking thing. I want to see what, what your junk is. And I had to come to a point where I said, you know, I'm not here to cannibalize my people. Um, and I say it in the film and I don't answer it in the film. I say, how do you point at something, a problem that needs solved without assigning blame at the same time? How do you do it? Well, it's implicit in the story. You can't. If you're really going to solve a problem, you have to say, these are the actors. These are the people who are involved. This is what they all did or didn't do. You know, you don't have to curse them for those things, but you do have to look at them and say, this is the guy who hit me a lot. This is the mom who said, go hit him now. This is, and again, my parents, if they hear this, they know I'm not stuck there now. And I'm giving you the, a little of the behind the scenes here. Um, and so... So that becomes an important part of the process, but I didn't want to eat up my family. I still want to, as you see in the film, one of the primary takeaways is if we're going to be okay, we got to have each other. If we're going to be okay, it's going to be all of us or it's not going to be any of us. I mean, that's how this works. It's interesting you talked about me forgiving my parents because I actually don't say that in the film. And even when I hug my mom, I don't say I forgive you there. I say, it's okay, I understand. I know I, I have a better understanding. Like you, I said, you didn't mess up as bad as, as something like that. Like I didn't just say, it's okay, mom, nothing happened. I had to learn that. And, and to be fair, in that moment, I had not yet forgiven anybody. I was just getting comfortable with going, okay, yeah, this happened and you were a part of it. What's, what's interesting, Luke, is that the film itself, though, uh, incited a tremendous compassion like me speaking as a viewer, I had tremendous compassion for your mom yeah, and for your grandma. Yeah. And just, you definitely brought this feeling that, you know, you point the finger, I think you even said this, and the blame just keeps going because someone, this person who's victimizing you, let's say, was a victim as well. Yeah. And, then, and they were a victim as well. And it just sort of keeps going. So I felt a lot of compassion. Yeah. And even though maybe you didn't explicitly say, I forgive you in the film. Well, and, and, and that's intentional. I mean, I actually gave my parents the very first word in the film. They, they tell a story about me as a little hellion kid. That's intentional. I didn't want to start my parents off as being voiceless perpetrators. Uh, they were in a way a victim to my craziness as a child. I mean, I was, I don't mean a victim in that. I mean, I mean, I was a, I was a handful. The, the reality is, is that the kid they were punishing, you know, was, not behaving properly. <laughs> he just wasn't kind of like hitting the mark. It's a vicious cycle, right? So the cycle It's a vicious itself. cycle. Yeah. But see, but my brother was spanked and didn't have that experience because he didn't have a previously damaging experience. Yeah. He was able to buy the idea. I mean, he flat out says this to my parents. He's like, the whole idea that when we get spanked, it's for our own good. He said, I totally bought that. I get that. And it, I it, think siblings often do have, I have two brothers and we had very different experiences with my uh, parents yeah. and I, I've had conversations with one of my brothers and he just like, he remembers a different history, you know? Um, yeah, it's, it's the individual's preference, frame of reference and so forth. One of the things I noticed, you didn't name the person who initially uh, abused you. And I, and I, I don't know, maybe that's because you don't know them or who they were. Well, how I related to that was, in, in my own family situation, I used to heap a lot of judgment on my parents. And I've um, realized with maturity and being a parent myself um, that I, I've needed to let go of that desire to bring judgment and the recognition of my, I've got two children, one of whom has left home already. And I, I recognize the ways that I fell short as a parent. And so I've tried to grow in, in grace and awareness of my own um, my own damage and the, the, you know, it's always a chain, right? Whatever happened to that person, someone did something to them. And so, and, and that doesn't excuse it, but yeah, yeah, it doesn't excuse it. Well, right? that's the big, so what? That's the big, so what? I mean, no, it doesn't. But when we go, look what happened to me and look who did it, you can almost every single time go and look what happened to them and look who did it. And then look what happened to that person and look who did it. And that doesn't actually cancel out what's happening to us at all. No, but the question is how to move forward. So, you know, um, forgiveness got Eva into a lot of trouble with her fellow survivors. I mean, made some real 
really mad people because they're like, we're not forgiving. There was an actual practical uh, need that she had to understand what was put into her body as a, as a child who was experimented on. And because of the way the war trials and things that happened, all that information was like sealed. And the only way you could even see it was to admit that this had happened. But the only way to admit that it had happened for her was to say, okay, I won't take you to trial. Just, let's just say it happened, open the document so I can see what happened to me. So it's like forgiveness became, it wasn't just this touchy-feely, do I want to have them out of my head? It was also like, there are secrets. There's stuff I need to know. And, and being bitter and saying, okay, I'm going to get my pound of flesh come hell or high water. Well, now maybe you don't get to know what happened to you. You see what I mean? So life's not easy. Forgiveness could be a whole film. It's messy. It's really hard for humans. I suspect the essence of God hovers around that idea of forgiveness. Like it's really hard for us to dock onto. We don't have that port. (laughs) Our spaceship's got a lot of different shape. We can attach to a lot of things, but that level of forgiveness is, whew, I mean, we're not going to figure that out. I think it can come through acceptance of suffering, right? There's an equation with, with suffering and, um, and I would say maturity. Like we've talked in a couple of episodes about paying the price, you know, like part of adulthood and maturity is recognizing that you're paying the price for those who are less mature and less capable, whether that's through trauma or just not developed. And so the, the most mature people and the most capable people have to pay the, the greatest price, essentially. And, and that's part of the way that we as individuals move forward and, and we you know, maintain those connections with people who you know, might be difficult people, might be individuals who um, just through their immaturity and through their, you know, their level that they're at, it, it can be painful. But we we can make a choice right and that could be your parents that could be our own kids that could be um you know like for me often it's students who are very difficult and i have to get go in there every day and do my best to teach them and sometimes they don't want to be there they don't they don't want to be in the class they they do what they can to disrupt the class and you know and i'm dealing with all kinds of you know emotional reactions and difficulty but the, the person with the most maturity is the one that should set the stage Chris in the film talks about like we're living trauma is a community experience. We all pay for it. You pay for my trauma. I pay for yours. Sometimes that's just in the quality of our interactions. Like Mark, you're talking about your students. Like you're paying prices probably for, for trauma there. Um, You're not going to get to cover things like you would have covered. You won't be as efficient as you would have been. It's true on an individual level. It's true on a group level. And that's again, why we have to come to this corporately. We have to look at this as a group. Uh, it's private, but it's corporate too. Luke, what did just the process of making this film, um, if you could sort of summarize walking away from this project, sort of what are the biggest lessons you've learned or even even the way of healing? You know, like there's someone listening or someone's watching this film uh, and they've experienced trauma. What do you want them to, what do you want them to know as they as they watch this film? Well, I wanted, with the making of the film, uh, and, and going back to that central focus, like what's the takeaway? First, I wanted people to take their own suffering a little more seriously, like give it another look. Spend a little time with it, I guess, is maybe a little more accurate way to say it. Don't just look at it and go, yep, it's there, and then walk away. Uh, consider whether or not it's worth spending some time with. You might look at things and go, I'm actually really not stuck, right? There's it, not some guarantee that you have childhood problems. But it's like start looking at anything that just catches your attention, right? The brain is always looking for abnormalities. The brain doesn't see things that fit the expectation. It sees things that stand out. That's how survival works, right? You're not looking for all the trees and the bushes and the grass blades. You're looking for the thing that's moving behind them that shouldn't be, the tiger. With PTSD, I would see my kids standing in front of me, like asking, you know, hey, dad, can I, whatever, have a fruit roll up. And all of a sudden they would just, their skin would be peeled off and they'd be rotting and they'd be like melting or on fire. Like just, there it is, just looking at it like, oh my God, because you know, you've seen so much death and destruction. So there was all that PTSD stuff, which really didn't touch on my childhood stuff at all. Right. It was all these little T traumas were stacked up like the dominoes 
Then the earthquake hit me. And then the total mass effect of all of these little tiny bad, maybe not even bad connections, just unfortunate, not so great connections under the stress of that bigger trauma. It just, boom. You know, you achieve this perfect mix of combustibility and the whole thing went down. I'm walking through the streets of Port-au-Prince with body memories. Didn't remember them. Body memories of having, I suspect, a man uh, sexually assaulting me, possibly in some pretty explicit ways, which involved cutting off my airway, which involved jaw problems. Like I have jaw, I've had jaw problems. It involved a lot of stuff, right? Now I'm walking around the streets of Port-au-Prince. Do-do-do. Don't remember that. My body does. I've always had claustrophobia. I've always been afraid of being crushed. I've always had these gag reflexes. I've always had sexual dysfunction, all kinds of stuff. Guys, I had cartoons I was drawing in high school that when you flipped them upside down, the head of the character was a penis and testicles. Like you could just, yeah, uh, there was just stuff in there, right? Stuff that the, the doctors were looking at and going, before I gave them a narrative, they're going, everything you're showing us looks like the, the tail end of a sexual assault story. I've just created a buffer in my life where I can interrupt their automated response. And I try to do that as much as I can. And some days I'm good at that. <laughs> some days I'm really bad at that. Um, that's really kind of what, for me, healing has produced. It's produced the ability to create a buffer between my automated response and my healthiest response. And that little tiny buffer, which can be microseconds, honestly, can be nurtured and maintained through things like mindfulness, meditation. You guys might throw prayer into this mix, talking to God. Um, those kinds of practices for me, the spiritual practice, probably is most useful at this point in my life existing to help me navigate that gap. I don't know if you're a fan of Jordan Peterson or not, sure. but he, he had this one quote that stood out to me was, uh, you need to build a machine to basically stop the machine. The idea was because your brain very much sets up those automatic routines that um, if you've been living your whole life, let's say you've been you know drinking too much or, or pornography or whatever it is, yeah. right? And all of a sudden you want to make a change. You can't just, you've got to build something new in your brain, in your mind. And it, it takes a practice, yeah. right? It takes, um, like you say, it might be prayer, it might be meditation. It, for, for a while, it might be just abstaining from all uh, connection to the internet sure. or, 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 or not going anywhere where you might be tempted to drink or whatever. I mean, it's usually a mix, you know, right? You've, it's, you've got, some, it's some mix of things. It's often, yeah. yeah. I want to make a little note on the idea of responsibility. Responsibility is something I hear a lot from sort of being shouted from people who themselves may say, well, I don't have trauma, but say, cousin Larry does, right? And cousin Larry needs to get his act together and take responsibility for his life. Um, I'm really intrigued. Here we go again. Look at the words. Um, responsibility, I think, is spelled poorly. It should be a combination of two words, response and capability. Um, when you've been traumatized at a deep, deep, deep level and maybe don't even have the memory of it, you may actually be incapable of responding to the thing inside of you that is causing your whole life to go to hell. You know, you're bouncing checks left and right. Your, your marriage is falling apart. You can't be married happily. You've done it five times. And it doesn't work. You know, you can look at your life and go like, all this stuff... Uh, a lot of times, you know, you can you can identify good places to start just inside of our dysfunction. Like, look inside those places, but don't curse people who haven't had the blinders taken off their eyes yet. And that's a very spiritual way of putting it, but it's, it's the idea holds. That, you know, you could look, I mean, we have people in our family, strung out on drugs, didn't raise their own kids. Easy to look at them and say, you know, they're a deadbeat or you know, shame on them or this or that or the other. But, and, and, and to say all they need to do is just wake up and take responsibility. I think we also have to tell ourselves like with the word responsibility or faith or Christian or spiritual or healed or well or unwell, it's really important. And this is the work of relationship. This is the deep community and communication work of relationship is we need to know that we're talking about the same things. If we're talking about forgiveness, let's not assume we all agree what that is. 
if we're talking about healing, let's not assume. Wellness, let's not all assume. You know, these kinds of things. I think this is all a byproduct of my spiritual upbringing. There was just so many answers with don't ask questions, these are the answers. Just don't ask questions. And it was fine because the answers worked okay. And the more I repeated them, the more pats on the back I got. I was raised to be the guy wearing the Ask Me About Jesus jacket. Like I, I responded well to the Scooby Snacks when I prayed over people and, you know, spoke in tongues and all the things that I, uh, you know, I claimed, you know, to have done or I did do that I claimed had spiritual significance. You know, it got me promoted inside of that community. Um, not necessarily bad, but I was living in a, in a little bit of a fantasy. And all I was doing was I had built a bypass around my heart. I had built a bypass around my so, issue. It sounds very much. It sounds very much like yeah, you were caught in a performance Absolutely. mindset. You were performing for for validation, and then that seeped over into your life in a whole bunch of other areas. Um, have you done any reading with Richard? Yeah, Moore absolutely. At all, yeah, he's he he's got so some just, tremendous things to say. I'm a huge fan of really um, just disruptive thinking. And I consider him to be a disruptive thinker. Not, I don't mean troublemaker, right? I mean people who come along and go, you know, hey, you've been thinking this. What about this? It's not even people who come in and say, that's wrong. This is right. I'm not interested in that. I'm a real what about guy, you know, and I, I value anybody who's willing to do that. You guys are doing that. That's why I loved when I heard the podcast for the first time, I was like, ah, these are my people. We're not necessarily always in the same place. I don't even get the sense that you guys are in the same place with one another, right? So I don't feel like the three of us right now are any way on the same spot. But we, again, we're bypassing detail and we're coming together on commonality and we're having this core discussion, which I don't know about you guys, I'm talking a lot, but when I get to hear you talk on the episodes where I'm listening, uh, I find the exercise to be tremendously helpful. I mean, tremendously helpful just to keep us from becoming satisfied with easy answers. Easy answers aren't necessarily bad, but they're usually really, really, really not terribly helpful. I can probably um, <clears throat> maybe end with this, with this question, okay. um, Luke. Um, you know, I, I see a trajectory in your story and in your life that, it still reminds me very much of sort of the Christian, um, and maybe this is because something you can't shake, I can't shake, Mark can't <laughs> shake, but this idea of being an agent of healing, yeah. right? And being uh, an agent of justice and this driving force to just make the world a better place and have people just get better, right? I see that in your story. So I just want to sort of see what you, what you what you'd say about that. And, you know, you you made a comment in your in your in your film about being agents of justice, like we belong here. That there's there's a role for human beings in the universe. So if we could just maybe have you expand a bit on that. I really believed through a great many years in in the church that I was on a mission from God. Right, I was the Blues Brothers, you know, minus the blues. Well, I guess I had the blues too. Um, but I was on a mission from God. I had destiny. I had purpose. I walked around telling people, I feel like I'm supposed to be doing something. Now, some of that, you know, fast forward, 45-year-old with those same grooves in his head, I have said, maybe this was that thing, right? <laughs> but there's another part of me that's going, we're not, we're not necessarily playing that game anymore, Luke. It doesn't really matter. Maybe. Okay, fine, whatever. But maybe not. So just let that go. You don't... The first tree in the garden, the one that we were told no was the one where we're allowed to know the answers. Good and evil. The knowing of the good and evil. Like, we're supposed to be confused here a little bit. We're supposed to be stuck in the middle. I think, in a way, we're like the processors. We're some of the processing units in this big mind. And, you know, processors stop processing when the file's been rendered. You know, keep moving. Keep chunking the data. The information that's flying at you and me and all of us, take what comes at you, and, and try to process it and turn it back into the world, like you said, Paul, and like the film says, if you're, a, if you're not a victim anymore, then you're a contributor, right? You might take a hit as a contributor, but you're still a contributor, and you can bring things like fairness. Oh, it isn't fair what happened to me. Well, you're right. It isn't fair. You got attacked by wild wolves. That's, you know, that's not fair. What do you want to do with that? You have agency. You have power. 
the trees provide us oxygen and many other things. The, you know, animals provide us things. We have things to provide. And I had to, um, and it was, yeah, it was quite frankly, it was quite a bit of even atheistic thinking that allowed me to arrive at that. That doesn't mean I'm there as a full-on atheist. I don't know what I am. Um, I have atheists tell me, when I say I'm agnostic, they tell me I'm, an, I'm a cowardly atheist. Um, but I, I, I am just really comfortably suspended in not knowing that stuff. Luke, where can people see your wonderful film? So they can go uh, to whatliesinsidefilm.com. And we're, we're offering it there for like home viewing, or if you wanted to license it to play, you know, for your, uh, for example, if people want to use it to train teachers, for example, I've heard a lot of teachers say, Hey man, this opened my eyes about my students. Like, so a lot of teachers are saying this makes a good teaching tool, not to show the students necessarily, but for the teachers to see, um, clinicians are feeling like this is a, this has been a helpful tool to help people, uh, again, just not feel alone. Well, we definitely encourage our listeners to check it out. Uh, like I said, I, it, it had a huge impact on me. I really appreciate you giving me a chance to have a look at it and, and Mark as well. Uh, it was great to have you on the podcast, Luke. Uh, great to see you again. Let's make sure it's not another 16 years before we talk. Yeah, yeah, let's definitely do that for sure. Thank okay, you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for talking with us. 